so sorry. I'm so forgetful. What's my name again? It's Mr. Clark. No, see? You just learned something. Hello, humans. Welcome to the M-Word, the Manx Sports Podcast, brought to you by Martin. That's me. I'm Matt. That's him. Welcome back, Matthew. How are you today? Oh, I'm still suffering with the, the man flu, unfortunately. 16 weeks on and still ill. <laughs> Uh, just a quick uh, shout out to our sponsors as a uh, normal billboards.im do digital advertising you'll see them down the prom uh, in town if you want to get your brand out there get your name seen they're the guys to go and see that's billboards.im the future of advertising thanks guys so Matthew uh, we're going to dive straight into it today so the movie clip we played it or the audio clip we played at the beginning I'm giving you a tip there on what it was did you recognise the movie? nope so, I'm not surprised either. It's called The uh, the Wrong Clock Story, another remote film. Uh, no. Uh, it, well, uh, I'm not over to our guest. Have you heard of that film? I have. Well, I've yeah. heard of Wrong Clock, not yeah. the film. Right. Uh, it's, just, it's about a teacher from uh, from the, from the America who moves around schools uh, to, to educate. There's many sort of interweaving stories within it, uh, but, the, but the, the main overriding is, is his ability to deal with different types of people and, and, and students in different types of environments and how to work with them collectively and individually which I think ties in nicely with our guest today who's kindly come into the studio a teacher of many years and many of you may know uh, Neil McGregor thanks for joining us today you're welcome thanks for the invitation always happy to spend some time talking about sport <laughs> good good yeah. so the first question with, with that voice is uh, we kind of know the answer already but are you a come over Manx 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 or Manx as a Welshman well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to break the mould because I think all your guests so far have been uh, Manx and I'm definitely a come-over, um, Scottish father, English mother, born and bred in Wales, university in England, and living in the Isle of Man. Oh, so a right. bit of a mongrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definite come-over. Heinz 57 dog type of thing. So when did you first come to the island? Um, 1977. Took right. up a, a teaching job at Balakameen. Actually had no idea where the Isle of Man was, or I didn't know anything about the Isle of Man when I applied for the job. And I, I vividly remember being in the library at Loughborough, and it was the time when uh, all the teaching jobs came out in the Times Educational Supplement, and I was sitting there with a group of guys, and I remember seeing this job in the Isle of Man and whispering to them, because it was the library, has anybody heard of the Isle of Man? Does anybody know where it is? And somebody said, oh, it's a fantastic place. It won the sunshine record for the UK last Somebody's year. Somebody's lying to you. That was the Isle of Wight, of course. But on that basis, <laughs> that basis I applied for the job at Balakameen and I've been freezing cold ever since. <laughs> so go back a bit before that then, your, your early years, where were you born? Um, born and brought up in uh, a little village near Llanelli in South Wales. Easy for you to say. Yeah. Um, a place where sport was huge. Um, right. So been a, a huge rugby town especially, um, probably most famous for the day uh, that we beat the All Blacks. Oh, right. Wales, okay. have, Wales have never beaten the All Blacks in my lifetime, I'm 64 years old and Wales last beat them 66 years ago. But uh, when I was a 17 year old schoolboy, I went to watch my hometown club, the Llanelli Scarlets beat the All Blacks and so that's right. what Llanelli's... Okay. Most known for them. Right, yes. okay. Was that like a warm-up type of game for a... For uh, a it was in the days when clubs would play international touring teams. It doesn't ha actually happen anymore. Uh, and they were the last club to beat the All Blacks. Oh, right, um, okay. So that's probably never going to happen again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So were you were playing a lot of rugby in the younger years then, that was your main sport? No, I was actually a competitive swimmer when I was younger. Um, it just happened to be something that I was fairly good at. Um, to be honest, I didn't have a huge passion for it. Uh, given the choice, I would have much preferred to be a talented rugby player or a cricketer or a footballer. Um, but it wasn't to be. I was good enough for school teams but never shone. Um, and swimming was just something I seemed to be fairly good at at the time, so stuck with it. Right. Is that something your parents no, helped you get into the swimming? Or? Not really. My parents both came from really tough backgrounds. My dad was an orphan. By the right. time he was five, both his parents had died. Right. My mum, uh, born in Liverpool, was an evacuee during the war. So she was, at the age of eight, uh, the theory was that big cities like Liverpool were big targets for being bombed. So they packed all the children in Liverpool onto trains and sent them to different parts of the country. And my mum was sent down to Wales and never went back. Right. So neither of my parents really had parents. Right, right. Um, and never really had the opportunity to be involved in sport. But when my sister and I showed a, an aptitude and an enthusiasm for it, uh, they couldn't have been more supportive. Right, right. Yeah. So you're swimming then, swimming locally. Do you, were you particularly... Was it just any event type of swimming or, because I, I think, not know a lot about swimming, but people tend to specialise in different dis uh, distances and, and I guess strokes as well. Yeah, I was a backstroke swimmer, um, mm. training from about the age of eight to nine, uh, five, six times a week. Um, used to swim for West Wales against the other districts of Wales and used to win. Yeah. Um, so I guess at one time it was probably the best in Wales for my age, but um, as I say, didn't really have the passion for it. Oh, right, um, okay. But stuck with it because it was something I, I was keep very good trouble. at the time. Yeah, yeah keep, keep out trouble. trouble. So, so you mentioned, uh, so Loughborough, what, where did that then fit into the story? Yeah, um, going back to my parents, my mum tells me that, uh, I don't remember this, but she's adamant that it happened. At the age of seven, I told her I wanted to be a PE teacher. <laughs> now, I know for sure that by the time I was 11, I knew I wanted to be a wow. PE teacher, but I, I don't remember going as far back as the age of seven. But and is there anything, looking back, that you think, you know, did you have a PE teacher at school that you thought yeah, looked yeah, up to? Absolutely. The, the PE staff at our school were fantastic. Um, all three of them had been to Loughborough. And I don't know whether you, you know, but... Um, there's a, a purple tracksuit that Loughborough students wear and these three PE teachers came to school every day in these purple tracksuits and right. I thought I want one of those. Sounds like a Harry Enfield kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, sketch. So but, uh, from the age of 11 I was adamant that I wanted to go to Loughborough and I wanted to become a PE teacher. Right. Uh, and I, I sometimes find it difficult to understand people these days who say they go to university and they finish and they're still not sure what they want to do. Right. Whereas as I said, Neil, I'm 43 and I have no idea what I want to do. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm retired now and it gave me 40 odd years yeah. of a thoroughly enjoyable career. It's funny because one of the first, well, I know you from a long time back, but one of the first times your name came up for the podcast was chatting to, uh, to George and he obviously talked about uh, kind of the effect you had on him, which was positive. But then looking back of those school teachers you looked up to back then, that obviously had an impact on you back then. Yeah, I was talking to another retired teacher um, fairly recently and I said, if, if there was one thing, if I was going to have my time again, 
I would do more of. It's dropping in little things to children. You can say a couple of words to a child and it doesn't mean much to you and you don't even remember it, but 30 years later they'll come up to you and say, do you remember when you told me this? And, do you and the effect you can have yeah. on young people is perhaps not always apparent when you're in the middle of the job. Yeah, yeah. And it's only when people come up to you a few years later and say, some, sometimes, yeah, yeah. What, what, what an effect something you've said to them had on them. I suspect there's probably more of that happening. You probably know, so you, you kind of start saying you'd like to do more, but you probably have and you're probably just not aware of 90% of them as the odd person that will yeah, say to I'm you. I'm not you talking see. about me in particular, I'm just saying generally. Yeah, I think no, teachers but, don't realise um, how much those words of encouragement, yeah, uh, how yeah. much of an effect they can have on on young people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, ch chatting with Ben Tyne and other, other chatting this while, like doing the podcast, chatting to other people when we chat to Rich Sill about nature versus nurture and that, that, that when you're in that age gap, when you can leave a real imprint on children in a good way, which is yeah, obviously you know, teachers. Yeah, his wife, his wife is a teacher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She was getting huge job satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd come home so many days and say to my wife, I'd have done today for nothing. You right. know, I would have done it as a hobby. Right. Um, Especially in the summer, you know. And if I had gone to the Isle of Wight, maybe. Yeah. You know, been so, but when, when you're outside in the summer teaching athletics and cricket, and oh, it's just a joy. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So uh, you're at Loughborough. You go, or you look for the, or you see the job, job advertised. Yeah. Do you um, then come to the Isle of Man for the interview, or is it done? Yeah. Do you have telephones back in those days, Neil? Was that so? Do you have telephones back in those days? We did have telephones. <laughs> yeah, um, not mobiles, and I still uh, don't have a mobile. Yeah. Um, but yeah, came over for the interview and a couple of months later started teaching at uh, Balakami. Right, okay. And had 10 really enjoyable years there. As a PE teacher? As a PE teacher. And do you tend to do other, sub do you do other subjects that happen? When we were training, we had to train in another subject, but I think by the time we'd finished, all schools were so big that you needed full-time PE teachers. Right. So I have taught English from time to time. Um, but not a great deal because schools are so big now you need three or four males and three or four female PE teachers full time oh, without okay. having to teach another yeah. subject. Right. So, so uh, your time at Balakameen, enjoyable? Loved it. I was doing a, a lot of swimming coaching. I was oh. the island coach for five years during my time there. Um, I always think I was slightly unlucky. I was the island coach for five years and uh, Got a trip to the first Island Games, which were held on the Isle of Man, <laughs> and a trip to the Commonwealth Games in 1986, which were in Edinburgh. Never mind. <laughs> so when I hear of people going to the Island Games in Bermuda and yeah. the Commonwealth Games in New Zealand, I think perhaps my timing wasn't as it should have been. But yeah, yeah really enjoyed that. And taught, uh, coached some really good swimmers, including somebody called Sean Pilling, okay. who went on to become Sean Bryce, maiden name. And, uh, competed in triathlon for Great Britain in the Sydney Olympics. Right. Okay. Wow. Okay. So the uh, the the experience of the Commonwealth Games then that must be, you know, going out in front of the, you know, doing the set opening ceremony and that type of thing must be pretty. Uh, yeah, I was uh, really looking forward to the opening ceremony. I'd seen it so many times on TV, marching round, and it poured with rain. Oh, right. It was Edinburgh, <laughs> and I think it rained virtually every day for three weeks. Um, but a fantastic experience. Enjoyed every minute of it. And as a coach, do you then train the? Uh, do you do train all strokes? How does that work in, in coaching? Yes, women? yeah, yeah, yeah. Train, train all strokes. Um, the particular year I went in 1986, the the two people who qualified were two brothers, 
uh, Graham Stigand and Shane oh, Stigand. Okay, yeah. Graham, of course, went on to become a, a top triathlete, competed at Kona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's down on, on the, in the hall and uh, in the NFC. He I think is, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he, he was also. Um, he got a mention in the Guinness Book of Records. I think he was the only swimmer to have competed in something like five or six Commonwealth Games. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, so he, he has a certificate from Guinness. All oh, right, have to reach out to Stiggy. Uh, when the uh, events are, are going on, do you feel much pressure on like, oh, anything of that nature? Of you're, you know, you got, you've coached these guys. You want them to be doing well. If they don't, is there? Do you yeah, feel anything? Obviously, you do. I think in a sport like swimming, there are less variables. I think I've felt more pressure when I've been coaching rugby teams. So many more variables. You know, within a few tenths of a second, what your swimmers are going to do, right, yeah. and you know they're going to struggle to compete with the best in the world. You hope they get personal bests. Um, so yeah, for their sake, you want them to do something equivalent to their personal best but you know beforehand that they're going to be yeah. there or thereabouts yeah, whereas in a game like rugby or whatever yeah. uh, so many more variables you don't really know what's going to happen it's oh, quite interesting just to loop back to Loughborough you mentioned about uh, just to do some name dropping in there that you went to uh, was it a Loughborough you were with was it Seb Coe was there and yeah in our hall of residence a year below um, my year, um, but in the same all of us, was Clive Woodward, who is now Sir Clive Woodward, coached the uh, England rugby team when they won the World Cup. Sebastian Cole was also uh, yeah. at Loughborough at the same time. He was a half-decent runner. He wasn't bad, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do remember him competing in my early days. But a guy who um, I became really friendly with at Loughborough, um, somebody called Guy Smith, was um, somebody who ended up Working, the two of us worked together at Castle Russian for 20 years. So we were best of friends at Loughborough, same year group, same hall of residence. Uh, and then 10 years after leaving Loughborough, uh, the opportunity came uh, for me to work with Guy at Castle Russian. Two jobs came up at the same time. Mm. You so told him it was sunny here all the time. I you? told him it was sunny, wonderful <laughs> climate, so I persuaded him to come over. And the chance to work with Guy was just too good an opportunity to miss. I actually took a pay cut and left. Right. I enjoyed my time at Balakameen. It would have taken a lot to make me leave. But the chance to work with an old friend. Yeah. Um, and not just an old friend, but somebody who I had great respect for as a, as a sportsman. He was actually one of the best all-rounders at Loughborough. Right. And that's saying something. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite a sporty university. Mm. Um, which I knew he was even better as a teacher than he was as, a, right. as an all-rounder right. and um, yeah we worked together for about 20 years. Right, so you were the two PE teacher or two we were, the PE and then teacher. after about 10 years of working together uh, the school grew, the numbers grew and we needed uh, an extra PE teacher and Cliff Dunn joined us, uh, another fantastic teacher and I think it's fair to say that over that sort of period um, Castle Russian gained a bit of a reputation for being a school that was Pretty good at sport. Yeah, right, right. That's it. certainly the reason I know I chose to go to Castle Russian. Because um, that was it at the time. Um, I remember my mum's asking, you can either go to, we can either move and go to Peel or we can stay and go to Castle Town. And with the reputation they had with you, the three teachers you just mentioned there, it was the obvious choice, really. And I know, mm. I know a lot of people around my years and that felt the same. 
That's nice to hear. Whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to actually ask about, you know, I suppose your teaching techniques yourself. How do you, you very much, or what are your, te- you know, do you, are you conscious of your teaching techniques? Are you kind of hands-on? Do you feel you need to kick people along or treat everyone yeah. individually? Or I think a lot of people would describe me as a, a bit of a disciplinarian. Right. But maybe just in the early year or two. Uh, and I think once the line's been established, yeah, right. what's Set acceptable and what's not then you back off and I, I don't think it was even a year or two we would be quite hard with the uh, year sevens when they came in right. just for a while up until half term until they understood what, what what was acceptable and what wasn't and I think round about half term of the first term you would consciously start to back off a little bit and develop a, a much better relationship with the kids but before that that line had to be established yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose not what what just can you expand on that just hope for me for just what's is that you make them do extra runs or you it's how they talk to you or how where, what yeah it's, a bit it's, of it's all of that um, not so much the extra runs but yeah if you haven't got self-discipline and you haven't got respect for the people who are teaching you then I, I think that's a big block on how far you're going to progress right, okay um, I imagine that's quite hard to also explain to younger children as well to this you know this is you need to learn the self-discipline at this age. I think age, the good respect. thing was that the three of us on the male side and the girls as well, we had a fantastic girls PE department at Castle Russian. We were all pretty much on the same wavelength. Right, yeah. Um, so there was no change in, didn't matter whose lesson you went to, the same standards were expected and, and adhered to. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah, just setting the tone, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And during that time, were you then at Castle Russian doing other, you mentioned, we talked earlier about ballet Camille, were you doing other, other, Classes always are just PE because of the size was, of the school. I think I did about a year or two of little bits of English, but right. yeah, generally just just PE and games right, full time okay. swimming as well. Yeah, okay. So during that time at time at uh, Castle Russian, what sports are you doing on a personal level? Um, I was playing rugby. Um, played for Douglas Rugby Club for right. fifteen years, and then in those days we had an island team as well. It doesn't happen anymore, um, but we had an island team and represented the island for about. 15 years again. Right. Um, Where did you play? I played at hooker. Right, okay. So about six stone, two light for the uh, modern day hooker. But in those days, the technique of actually hooking the ball back right. was important, whereas now the ball doesn't even go in straight. Right. So when the ball had to go in straight, your technique of being able to strike the ball back was vitally important and you could get away with being small because if you were flexible and you could get your leg across and pull that ball back, right. whereas nowadays... It, it so you were in the front line of that, not knowing anything about front the front line. line. Right, yeah. okay, right, okay. Right. Well, with a lot of uh, heavy, heavy, strong people, I would guess. Were you, obviously, yes. you're looking at you now, you're fairly lean. 12 stone, soaking wet, much, much lighter than um, all the people I was playing with. Really. Right, right. Um, I think what got me through was a bit of tenacity and the fact that I love tackling. Right. I think that was the aspect of the game I loved more than anything. Um, didn't have great speed, didn't have size, bulk, um, but I think I made up for it with a bit of tenacity and yeah, the yeah. love of tackling. Right. And what was the environment like at the rugby club? It was just um, a great scene to come into. I, I came over not knowing anybody on the Alaman, and one of the first things I did was to ask about the local rugby club. And somebody said, um, Douglas Rugby Club's just down the road. Um, was made very welcome right from the start, and 
It's a great way of meeting new friends. Yeah. And I think this is true about sport generally. You were talking earlier, Martin, about some of the friends you have now or friends you had from cycling years ago and the camaraderie of it all. Um, again, went to New Zealand last year uh, on the Lions Tour with three other boys from Douglas Rugby Club who 25 years ago we all decided to start a standing order of putting £10 mm -hmm. a month into a kitty so that when we retired we could um, go yeah. and watch the British Lions in New Zealand. And, you know, just an example of the sort of camaraderie 25 years yeah, yeah, after yeah. we were playing together, yeah. we end up in New Zealand watching the Lions together. And how long were you in New Zealand? Down uh, we were there about three and a half weeks, so we yeah. saw the three tests and a couple of other games as well. Right, didn't fancy staying down there. Would have loved to. What a, <laughs> what a great country. Had you been there uh, before? Never, no. What a, um, the nicest people in the world. When we actually beat the All Blacks in one of the test matches, you couldn't buy a drink. All right, Their okay. supporters were, you know, they'd be saying, we don't lose very often, guys, can we buy you a drink? All right, that's nice. Just fantastic people. Um, After a couple of days, we said our ambition was to find a New Zealander we didn't like. And we didn't actually manage that in three and a half weeks. All right, that's yeah. a compliment. Yeah, I've heard a lot about the country. They say it's a pretty amazing place. Fantastic. I tell you, you got around a lot when you were down there. Tours um, were all over the place. Well, the, the last five games were all in North Island, and that's the ones we saw. So we didn't actually get to South Island, but we pretty much saw, went, travelled around most of North yeah. Island. And was Euphoria there, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, right, wow. Yeah, proper boys tour. It was. <laughs> so, uh, during those school years at Castle Russian, uh, you were uh, uh, starting to look to get involved, I guess, and I know you got involved with uh, taking the lads to Twickenham for the rugby. So when we spoke to Johnny Bellis a few <coughs> weeks back, he talked about going away and playing at, at Twickenham. Uh, so I presume, and I know Matt, you'd been there as well. Uh, that was part of what you were doing at the yeah, school. Yeah, the way it came about is... Um I happened to see uh, a competition advertised in the Daily Telegraph called the Emerging Schools Rugby Tournament. So it was basically open to every school in the country, apart from those um, who had a massive fixture list every year. So your likes of Kirkham Grammar School, Millfield, Sedbur, they weren't allowed to enter that competition. And I think the criteria was something like if you played less than 15 games in a regular season, uh, then you were eligible for this tournament. It was for under 12s. So I thought we'd have a go at this. And they'd said that the final was at Twickenham. I'm not thinking for a minute that we had any hope of getting that far. But um, I think somebody said there were about 1,800 schools entered the initial stages. Um, we won the Alaman section first. This was in the year 2000 when Johnny played. Um, then we had to go and play in the North of England finals in Preston Grasshoppers. And we won that. That then put us through to the last 64. And the last 64 um, played on a Saturday morning at Staines Rugby Club uh, in eight groups of eight. And the, the winners of each group, they were the eight teams that would progress to Twickenham that same afternoon and play in the quarterfinal of the, this competition. So we won our group in Staines. Um, the eight schools were then given, believe it or not, a police escort from Staines Rugby Club to Twickenham. Um, we played in the quarter-final and won that, we played in the semi-final and won that, and then the final was played uh, at half-time of the Army against the Navy match. Mm. So there were 40,000 people in the stadium. Um, we were taken into the England change rooms. Mm. They kitted us out as the Navy, mm. so we were given kit as the Navy. The other school from Redruth in Cornwall, 
they were kitted out as the army. So every time we touched the ball, we had 20,000 people yeah, shouting yeah, for us. Yeah. And every time they touched it, 20,000 people supporting them. But what a memory, fantastic. Yeah, and as I say, Johnny Bellis, one of your previous guests, yeah, yeah. was my scrum half that day. And then the next year, um, we qualified for Twickenham again. We went yeah. down to Staines. Same group. group, yeah. The same no, group. different year. Oh, group. Right. oh, sorry, I meant route as in to get to the finals. Same route, yeah. yeah. Same um, so next year's under 12s. Yeah. Um, so Johnny Bellis was my scrum half the first time. Yeah. And then the next time we got there, yeah. a young boy called Matthew Looker, <laughs> who you may have heard of, <laughs> he was my scrum half. Right. Um, so we got to play at Twickenham again. Wow. And then, <laughs> annoyingly, um, the next year we tried to enter it and they said no you've qualified for Twickenham oh, really? twice in two times you're not an emerging school anymore yeah, right. wow. but the criteria said as long as you play less than 15 games and we you know living on the Isle of Man you play four schools that's your regular fixture list so by every criteria we should have been allowed to carry on but that was it we entered twice got to Twickenham twice and we're told that's your lot mate yeah, I suppose uh, many were obviously ultimately a massive compliment isn't it because yeah, they don't want you there because yeah because you're obviously so good it seems that way to me you've got their two finals they're like you've had your go boys go away we'll, you yeah. know, we'll give someone else a go yeah. no, it's f fantastic man I say just when you're recapping it there just memories of, of the day going on the uh, playing that la I always remember playing that last um, the last match to put us through where we needed to win and I remember, you know, we were so happy. I think I, I even remember we ran and hugged. I ended up breaking my glasses or something like that. It wasn't until after you like, oh, just you couldn't care. I was so happy. And then on on say on the uh, the coach over and for me even happier scoring the the try. Yeah. Um, and I've still got the I've got the photo of, of that, the ticket and all Fantastic. that still um, yeah. still hung up. It's, it was uh, yeah. When you think about the Premiership rugby players who never get to play at now. Yeah, yeah, you know, full-time professional rugby players playing in the top league in Britain, yeah, yeah. and they never played Twickenham. Matt's not yeah. only played; he's <laughs> going to try there. Yeah, yeah, How yeah. many people can say that? Do you, do you look back as a teacher, and yeah. obviously it must give you a massive sense of pride that, because again, we talked earlier about the impact you have on have on children, and that, you know, here's Matt, you know, twenty twenty five years later, and that's a massive moment mm -hmm. in his life. That must must give you massive satisfaction, or do you just kind of think, well, it's my job? No, yeah, it was a massive moment in my life as well, I have to say. But um, what, what gave me just as big a kick as a, as a teacher was seeing the number of pupils we'd get turning up to practices. As a PE teacher, that was just such a big kick for me. Um, we would get 60 or 70 year sevens turning up to rugby training and similar sort of numbers, football, rugby, cricket, basketball netball the girls would be getting massive numbers for netball hockey if you turned up at castle russian in a lunchtime and looked at the field there was hardly a blade of grass right. that wasn't in use yeah, yeah. um that's just get, the environment you've created to get i don't know yeah, um, yeah, we, we 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 give a lot of our time but the the boys and the girls at castle russian were fantastic for turning up to practices yeah, um yeah. and that's what you thrive on as a as a teacher. PE teacher. The uh, and what was it like travelling with? I don't know how many how many go away. Twenty of you go away. Twenty twelve year olds. That must be pretty difficult. <laughs> Come on, you can be honest. Yeah, one or two like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to keep a close eye on drinking cider. <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't too bad. 
And was it would would it be just a few teachers would take a group away, or did sometimes be parents involved? Um, yeah, um, Johnny Bellis's dad was right. somebody who gave us. Uh, a f he used to help with the rugby coaching at Castle Russian. Right. Um, became a good friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we would draft people in. Um, Non-PE teachers, we'd get them doing things as well at lunchtimes and uh, after school. And we do sw obviously swimming training as well, I assume, because obviously with your background down at Castle Washington. Yeah, not so much. Um, when I left Balakameen, that's why I gave up the um, the island coaching job, because right. at Balakameen I had the facility there, we had our own pool, yeah. we could do morning sessions, I was doing um, training sessions before school with the, with the top swimmers, and when I moved down to Castle Russian, I sort of stepped away from right. that. And right concentrated more on the rugby. And were you still doing personally any swimming just for leisure or um, of that nature? A little bit, not not too much. Um, it was about the same time that I started doing the odd triathlon as well. Right, okay. Um, so I because that. I was from the swimming background, I didn't do much swimming training. I was an absolutely useless cyclist and runner. So, um, yeah, I had to concentrate <laughs> on those two, really. So how did triathlon come about? Um, yeah, it's another interesting story. I remember coming in from a, a rugby training session one day at Douglas Rugby Club and somebody put a poster up in the changing rooms and it was from the Armand Tourist Board advertising something called a triathlon. No. Nobody would heard of one before. It was the first one that had ever been on there. One of the first, I think, in the UK. And because it was advertised by the Tourist Board, I think a lot of people came from across. The winner was an Irishman. I'd say probably more than half the entry were from from across but I saw this thing advertised and it was um, you have to do a mile swim in the Acropro then it was a lap of the TT course on the bike and a nine mile run so I thought ah, sounds like fun I'll go with that hadn't ridden a bike since primary school I was about 27 at the time uh, one of the props said oh I've got a, a rusty old bike you can borrow that so a week before uh, the event, I thought, well, I'd better see if I can ride around the TT course. Set off about seven o'clock one morning, nothing to eat or drink. Got to Ramsey, okay, and about a mile up the climb from Ramsey, I just collapsed in an absolute heap at the side of the road. Couldn't stand up, couldn't walk, totally out of fuel. Um, didn't understand anything about the fact that I should have taken a bottle of water with me, or at least nothing to eat or drink. Uh, and ended up hitching a lift back to Douglas. <laughs> so that was my first uh, footsteps into triathlon. The, the event was a week late, and by then I'd spoken to a few guys uh, from cycling who'd said, ah, you, you've got to take things to eat and drink. You have to fool yourself. So a week later, uh, took part in the event, learned my lesson, uh, got out of the pool. I think I was second out of the pool. Sat in the change rooms and uh, because people had said you've got to eat and drink, I'd made some sandwiches and a flask of coffee. So I was sitting in the change rooms having my little picnic, big sandwiches and a flask of coffee and people were running into the change rooms, grabbing things, running out and I thought, I don't think I've quite sussed this <laughs> triathlon idea. But uh, that was my first attempt. I managed to get round. Right. But uh, yeah, it wasn't a great beginning. What, what's inside you to go, you know, to see a sign on a, on a rugby club? Board and go. I want to do that. Are you? Are you driven? Are you? Or is it just like challenges? You know, or just yeah, different I wouldn't or? describe myself as driven at all. But I do like a bit of a bit of a challenge, right. and uh, it sounded like fun. I've never been what I would call a, a, a top sportsman at any sport, um, but I've always been someone who put my hand up and said, 
you know, if they needed somebody in the house athletics team to do the 1500 meters, nobody wanted to do it, yeah, I'll have a go at that. Oh, right, okay. uh, don't ever remember finishing anything other than last in all the sports days. Um, but would always love, love, Just to participate. love participating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is a and that's why I got so much of a kick, I think, out of seeing the big numbers at Castle Russian turn up to practice. Um, remember one year uh, having the group, the year 10 boys together one time, they were all together and um, we happened to ask them, how many of you boys have never represented the school at any sport? And there were about 80 or 90 of them there. And there were 11 boys who'd never represented the school at any sport. So I said to them, if I can organise a game of football against another school on a similar basis that they are only going to pick from boys yeah, who've right. never played for the school before, would you be interested in playing? Uh, and to a man, they all said, yeah, yeah, we'd be up for that. So we organised them. Right. I think it was Ramsey Grammar School we played. And it was fantastic. So by the end of that game, Everybody in that year group had uh, represented the school at yeah, the sport. Yeah, it's uh, it sometimes does get a bit lost, doesn't it, when we when we talk about participation? It's it's that's at the core what what certainly sports at grassroots levels is about participation. It's not about we talk about many other things here: mm. the psychology, the mindset, wanting to compete, getting the edge, getting the game. But it's all about the participation, yeah. meeting new people, enjoying your time together, learning to. I suppose play team sports, which is, is a massive part of it. I mean, Rich talks about there's no such thing as a, an individual sport. Everything's a team I sport heard anyway. Yeah, up on that. yeah that I, was I, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's even got me right. thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you have to have a team around you, don't you? Yeah, even yeah. In individual sports. Yeah, and it, it got me thinking a lot about that. But yeah, so it's core participation is so important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so did you then after that first triathlon? Was it? I want to do more of these. I'm, I'm mad. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Um, I think it was a couple of years then before there was another one on the Isle of Man. They were quite a very new concept generally, yeah, I think, absolutely, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, people forget how new a sport triathlon is. Yeah. Um, were you still running, were you still doing the, the sports individually in between, or did no, you kind of do I, that? I, and just I was playing back? rugby, and if something yeah. like that came up, I'd <laughs> maybe practice for a week at something and give it a go. Um, but then, I think it was 1998, um, there was a triathlon club on the island by then, and we had a Christmas night out, and I think a few beers were involved, and one of the guys, who was only about my standard, neither of us were great shakes at triathlon, we were, you know, never competing for podium places, but he said to me, um, I'm thinking of having a go at one of these Ironman things, um, in the year 2000, to celebrate the millennium, do you fancy having a go? And at that stage, nobody in the Alamon had ever done one. You know, we all thought it was for superhuman people. But as I say, I think we'd had a couple of beers and uh, it didn't take too long for, for me to say, well, yeah, okay then. Because now if he'd have been one of the stars of the Alamon triathlon scene, I'd have thought, well, no, you could do it, but there's no way I could manage one of those. But because he was about my ability, and as I say, very much middle of the pack, um, I thought, well, okay, let's give it a go. So um, we decided we were going to give it a year and a half. So this was Christmas 98, so we'd have all of 99 and then do an Ironman in 2000 to celebrate the millennium. Well, after about four or five months, I won't mention his name, but he, he dropped out <laughs> and decided, oh, this isn't for me, I'm not going to do this. We'll put it in the well, I thought, well, I've done a fair bit of training already, I'll keep this going. And uh, about a year later then, I was on the start line 
uh, in Wolverhampton on half past five in a pitch dark morning uh, about to get into a freezing cold lake <laughs> and do one of these Ironman triathlon things and yeah managed to get round. How many would it be at the start of that, that type of event back, uh, then, back in those days? About a thousand I think. Right okay yeah, yeah good number. A thousand yeah, right. people. Must have been fairly early out of the swim being a strong swimmer I assume. Reasonably, yes, yeah. but then of course you have the disadvantage that all day people are flying past you. The, the good cyclists and the runners are just you feel as if you're not you're not moving on the bike. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever struggle with injuries or anything like that? Of your no, I've been very lucky with injuries, especially you know uh, my background in rugby. Um, I've broken all sorts of bones in rugby, but mm. um, not a sort of injury that would stop you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of healing time and you. Yeah, you can go and again. no knees have been good. Luckily enough, knees and ankles have held out. Right. So, what year was that first Ironman? Uh, that was in two thousand. Two thousand, right? Okay. And then, as a result, that was going to be my one and only one. But uh, as a result of that, I was picked for Great Britain age group team, oh, which for me, you know, a very average triathlete. I, I couldn't believe this, so I got picked for the Great Britain age group team for the. Um, long distance world championships in Denmark okay. which was another Ironman distance race so I thought well I can't turn that down I'll have to do another one <laughs> yeah. so went and did that and again great experience same year or the following year following year yeah, yeah, yeah 2001 one, yeah. Yeah. and how was that experience in Denmark oh fantastic to wear the GB kit yeah, for right. somebody who's never considered himself to be any good at cycling and running um yeah, a bit surreal, did, really. Did you mind? Did you mind that change in how you approached that one from the first one of just wanting to complete it? You weren't drinking you know, tea, were you? Between the transitions? Uh, no, I yeah. wasn't drinking yeah. tea. But um, <laughs> you yeah, know, you're right, Matt. Um, just wearing that GB um, tri suit puts you in a different mindset. All I wanted to do in the first one was to finish it, just get to the finish within the cutoff. If yeah. I was thirty seconds inside the cutoff, I'd have been very happy with that. But yeah, kind of makes you think you've got to take this mm. a bit more seriously now. <laughs> um, I take it all self-funded though, you don't, you yeah, know, it is. apart from you get Absolutely. a jersey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah right. So then that was going to be it, the second one. <laughs> but uh, then one of these MDOT, which is the, the branded Ironman, uh, came to the UK for the first time about five years later. So a friend and I decided we'd have a go at mm. that. And I did okay. I finished, I think, fourth in my age group. Right, and made wow. me think. Gosh, you know, if I could win my age group in a few years' time, I can get to Kona. Yeah, yeah. So, again... Um, so I your wife pulling her hair, pulling the, her hair out of the <laughs> Yeah, she's been very supportive, I'd have to say. <laughs> so we went, uh, the first I'm in UK was in Sherbourne in Dorset, and then it moved to Bolton, and that coincided with me reaching the age of 55. So I thought, well, I've moved up an age group now. In theory, this should get a little bit easier. So I thought, right, I'm going to give it a, a year, a good year, and pretty much dedicated a year of my life to see if I could have a chance of winning my age group and get to Coma, which is every triathlete's dream, even though, again, you're self-funded. Yeah. It's not cheap. Um, so I didn't have a drink for a year. Mm -hmm. I trained every day for a year. I know that's not recommended, <laughs> and I should know better. Um, but I did. I didn't have a day off training. Trained every day for a year and finished third. Oh. But uh, there was only one place in my age group. But you have to be at the award ceremony to claim your place. So I was called up onto the stage on the podium for third. They called the second guy up and he wasn't there. So I thought, my God, I'm one place away here. This could be my dream. So they called the winner up. He was from Belgium. Fantastic. Beat me by a long way. 
shook his hand and said, that was amazing, your time. I said, are you going to Kona? And he said, yes. Oh, that was my dream. <laughs> Gone in that one word. Uh, it could easily have been the case that he'd been before and didn't want the expense of going yeah, again. Or, yeah. you know, for various reasons couldn't go. But yeah, he said yes. If he'd said no, yeah, I would have yeah, been on my yeah, way to Kona. Sure, but, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And how, in those Ironman days, in those days of Ironman, I assume the fields were pretty big. I mean, they're obviously massive, massive now. I assume even back then. Yeah, I think they would always reach the limits, which would be yeah, between right. fifteen hundred and two thousand. Right. Um, and you got Ironman. So for those that, when you complete an Ironman, you're allowed, quote unquote, to get an Ironman tattoo. Did you ever go to that length? Uh, I did. Um, oh, right, my okay. daughter <coughs> persuaded me. She 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 was there when I completed my first one. And, right. Um, you get a free massage after an Ironman and yeah. um, the guy on the next table looked at me and he said is this your first one and I said yeah how do you know he said well you haven't got the tattoo uh, yeah. so my daughter was there and said right you're going to have to have that tattoo <laughs> and she actually came to watch um, at that time my daughter did no running no cycling no swimming and she was so blown away by the whole atmosphere of the day right. that she said I'm going to do one of these one day All right, okay. and two years later from nothing right she completed Ironman Bolton oh, wow. and qualified for Kona. Oh, really? <laughs> Just to rub it in your face. <laughs> very few people in her age group, to be fair, but she did qualify yeah, right. and turned the place down. Oh, did I she? was teared away. Uh, <laughs> You'd have had to pay for it, though, wouldn't you? She booked to go to a music festival. With oh, all right. So, <laughs> yeah. I said, give the place to your dad, I'll have yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stick a skirt on and away you go. You go in her age category. So, yeah, drinks a little bit. But now, of course, uh, the number of people doing Ironman probably yeah. at least a couple of hundred I would yeah, guess from yeah, the Alamon yeah, have done yeah, an Ironman yeah. so you were the first ever Manxman to do well I use the word Manxman in the sense of Live, appreciate the come over on the yeah, 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 yeah. To, to do an Ironman distance race yeah right so I know then uh, moving on in the early 2000s you started getting involved with the Ironman Sports Council how did that initially come about were you invited did you put yeah, your hand up um, I think nowadays you, you have to apply but um Somebody asked me, uh, would I be interested? I'd been asked about five years previously and felt I didn't have the time at that time. But when I was asked the second time, um, I felt I was in the right situation and yeah, accepted the invitation and did 10 years on the Sports Council. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Worked with some great people. And uh, one of my first um, meetings with the Alamont Sports Council in my first year, um, we were doing the interviews for Sport Aid and a young boy called Mark Cavendish, mm. who was about 13 or 14 at the time, came along, they had to fill a form in beforehand, and I, I read this form. And, uh, you had to put down your aims for the next 12 months, for the next four years, and then your ultimate aims. And most of the monks people would put as their ultimate aim to compete in the Commonwealth Games or something like that. And this Mark Cavendish on his form had put in uh, ultimate aims to win Olympic medals, to win stages of the Tour de France, to become world road race champion. And this was a boy who was 13 or 14. And what also resonated with me during the interview was when he said British Cycling had asked him to go away. This was November we were interviewing him and he said British Cycling had asked him to go away in a, a warm weather training camp to Mallorca over Christmas. And he said, I, I've told them that, in my opinion, warm weather training makes you soft. Uh, I've told them I'm going to stay in the Alaman and train in the rain and the, and the mm -hmm. cold. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just 
blew us all away when he went out. I think everyone looked around and said, wow, you know, this boy's going places. And I think what's even more about that story is now, obviously cycling's so high profile on the island and you see the, the younger riders, they can see a pathway. Back then there was no pathway, no one had done what he'd done. Yeah. So to even, I use the word dream or think of being able to do that, it's it needs somebody like that you're, you're exactly right and um yeah it comes from that wide base of the pyramid and i think what dot and her team do at the the nsc on a, on a tuesday night has had a massive effect on what's at the top of that pyramid the, yeah, the yeah. huge numbers and the big year numbers are again going back to the castle russian days and having um huge numbers turning up for practices um not surprising really from, the, from that wide base we had some pretty handy teams at the top yeah and of course so as apart from the those interviews for sport aid what what would the council kind of involve what what, what would you be doing yeah you were on one of two subcommittees and the one i that interested me was the sport aid one um i felt i had a fairly wide base of knowledge about a lot of different sports um, so I was actually on that for the full 10 years. They like to move you around to the different committees, but most of my involvement was with the sport age. So that's inter interviewing uh, yeah, candidates. Um, well, not interviewing, yeah. but chatting to candidates about yeah. their goals, aspirations. Re reading all the applications that would come in, uh, you'd get maybe 150 applicants, and then you'd narrow that down to the ones you were going to interview. And then after the interviews, you'd decide which ones you were able to support. Um, but yeah, I found that aspect of it really enjoyable. And they assume you're doing that in a group environment. Yeah, yeah. there were four or five. Right. Um, there's always somebody from the business community on Sport Aid. Right. Uh, I think it was David Stacey at the time, um, who I think is still involved. Um, and the rest were members of the Sports Council. And did, did you notice uh, from difference, depending on the sport environment they were in, how their approach or their applications differed? And this isn't to pick out bad or good sports, but would you notice certain sports might approach or people from sport background just approach their approach might be slightly different I think you I'm not, not sure what you're getting at but uh, in terms of I, th I think in the sense of like I've seen I think chatting to George when you looked at when we look at say rugby players who seem to be uh, just I want to use always slightly different breed so on the rugby pitch, are very respectful of the, the referee. There's a very uh, there seems to be a certain amount of discipline there. That's potentially not there in other sports, and therefore their uh, their approach to things is just slightly different. So I just wondered if you see that segmented. So in in the, in the way they approach yeah, you, that you sport. used the word discipline there, Martin, in terms of um, respect for the referee and so on. Um, what another way of looking at the word discipline is people like swimmers swimmers and cyclists were the were the two sports that i felt were the ones that worked the hardest right. you know swimmers would train nine ten times a week before school after school mm. cyclists would be out on their bikes every day um, and both sports that would demand a huge amount of effort physical effort uh, tough tough sports so yeah, when those sort of people came along and told you about their training, you couldn't help Appreciate but be the dedication. You yeah. couldn't help but be impressed. Um, I suppose there are other sports then, maybe less so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
And did the parents come along to those parents part uh, of that? If, if they were young enough, if yeah. the applicants were young enough, the parents were allowed to come along. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, Cam would have been in that category, but yeah, yeah. I think he was always his own person. Yeah. And yeah, felt yeah. confident enough and just blew us all the way. Confident without coming across as at all big-headed. Yeah, yeah. Um, just somebody who, after hearing him speak, you thought, He's going to do well, and, and, and as well, we want him to do well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We really hope this guy does it, and he, he, he did everything that was on that form. I think that form is still in the, uh, the Institute Sports Institute some, somewhere, yeah. um, and interesting to look back on that every one of those aims that he outlined, he's actually achieved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And most, a lot of satisfaction for yourself then, being part of that council for those number of years, and seeing those... Been able to, yeah. There were others who did a heck of a lot more yeah, work yeah. than me. Um, right. I, there was, I was very fortunate to work under Jeff Carvin, was the, the chairman of the sports council for the whole 10 years. He did a fantastic job. People like Andy Varnum, Steve Partington, great people to work with. And I believe the pr prior, but five years prior to when I went on the sports council, you went on to represent your sport. Right. So there would be somebody representing rugby, somebody representing football, cricket, and so on. And so they were all fighting their own corners, whereas that, that had changed by the time I started and you weren't there to represent the sport. So I felt everybody on that committee was there for the general good of sport yeah, of the yeah. Ironman, not for their sport. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, that was a good way of doing it. And ultimately, stepping away from that role, was that time or you just thought you'd served your time? Or Yeah, 10 years is about what they expect right. you to do. And a long time. Yeah. 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 Um, Gary... Gary Sern, who is now chairman, he started the same time as me, as me and he's still going, so he's right. done a few more years. But yeah, right. Ten years was about what was expected. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so moving on in, in in your in your life, you've when you you done how long were you at Castle Russian in the end? I was twenty years. Ten right. years at Balcomine, twenty years at Castle Russian. And then you moved on from there. And then yeah, I saw this. Came home from school one night and. It would have taken wild horses to get me out of Castle Russian, but I saw this job advertised at the Buckingham School, so a five-yard walk across the road from where I'd been for 20 years. And I thought, what a challenge that's going to be, a, a, a complete change of age group. Right. So I applied for the job and got it. Um, it's not a job I would have wanted to do for 40 years, but for those last four years, last eight years, thoroughly enjoyed every second huge learning curve for the first year right. went from coaching 18 year old rugby players to tripping over four year olds um, and doing head and shoulders knees and toes oh, right, okay. the action kids and all that sort of stuff <laughs> um, but I had an absolute ball loved every minute of the time there what made you change? Uh, just something to finish off mm. uh, the last eight years something for a bit of a change I think you all need the uh, a change sometimes to keep you fresh and as I say it was tough for the first few months getting your head around what these they say group were capable of doing and what they weren't um, but then really enjoyed it and uh, again going back to rugby what one of the boys I taught there uh, Bevan Rod uh, has now become a professional with Sail Sharks right. he actually played as a fly half for the Buckin um, played for England prep schools while he was at the Buckingham as a fly half mm -hmm. and is now a, um, 
a prop for sale sharks. Mm -hmm. He's played in the Premiership. He plays for England and the Twenties. Uh, There's quite a few rugby players that I again I suppose just haven't chatted to a couple on the podcast. That. There's more rugby going on than I certainly realised on the Isle of Man. I don't know. Yeah, maybe yeah, I need more to read the papers. Going away mm. and playing at a high standard. We've got Phil Kringle, the next cast Russian boys, yeah. playing in the Championship, one below the Premiership at the moment. And Bevan, who's actually injured at the moment, unfortunately, he's, uh, let's say, England under-20s and, and already as a 19-year-old has made his debut for Sale Sharks in the mm. Premiership mm. as a prop. Mm. And you don't really reach your, your peak as a prop till you're about 26. Mm. So I think he's got a huge career ahead of him. I take it you keep in touch with a lot of these guys. Yeah, Bevan especially. I've been across and watched him in right. school games. Um, they still call you Sir? No. <laughs> it was funny when we started after he'd left, uh, when he got to about the age of 17. Some of the texts and emails that we send sending each other, it was, hi, Mr. McGregor. <laughs> then it was, hi, Neil. Right. Then it was, hi, mate. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's how it should be. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, so the, the 10 years then, was that all sports you were doing at Bucken again? Uh, that, again, I guess, at that young age, yeah, it's a bit yeah, of everything, um, isn't it? Uh, all sports and with the younger ones, very generic stuff, yeah, so you right. wouldn't classify as a particular sport, just yeah, okay. ball skills and right. catching and throwing and things right. like that. Participation again, yeah. that participation yeah. I guess and getting involved. We actually started a triathlon there as well, so right, okay. um, that's still going as well. Right. Um, everybody in the school takes part, We have a, it's, on a, it's on a bank holiday when all the schools in the island are shut, apart from the Buckingham. Right. So they're open, which means all the parents are off work as well, so they can come and watch. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that still goes on. Right. And over your years of teaching, uh, how's the, I assume it was obviously very male orientated sport, I guess. Uh, and how have you seen that that transition change into, I guess, ultimately mixed sports and then competing together? Just you generally. Mean different age groups? Yeah, well, no, uh, from male to female. Just, I guess it was more. Or is it just yeah, you've got a participation? I, so I tend to, you know, people come up to me and remember me at school. And if it's a boy, I'll probably remember them. But if it's a girl, no, because I very rarely taught any girls. Right. Okay. Um, Do they mix them nowadays, or will they? Uh, not so much. No. I think certainly a couple of traditional sports. Yeah, right. um, yeah, boys would play rugby, football, basketball, cricket, uh, athletics, and the girls would do their hockey rounders, netball. Right. Yeah. And then when it's swimming, they're just different sessions to them. Yeah, the boys would be, be different times. Right, okay. Right, okay. Right. Uh, so you presumably with those last few years at Buckingham, you always had a retirement age in mind, did you? That you were going to? Yeah, it tends to be sixty for teachers. Yeah, right. um, so yeah, when I got to the age of sixty, um, I sort of packed it full time, and I'm sixty-four now. So for the last four years, I've been doing bits of supply teaching only at the Buckingham and Castle Rushley. Right. Um, what's really pleasing is the, the days I've been into Castle Russian, seeing that uh, the sort of numbers I was talking about that attended training, that's still happening and right. if anything it's grown. Right. Fantastic PE teachers there at the moment who uh, just kept the thing going. Yeah, it yeah, broke, yeah. broke my heart to see things yeah, drop off. and. Uh, it's like yeah. a legacy you've left. Yeah, there, really. Well, no, not me, but... Um, well, you built part of that legacy, though, having worked there. Well, it's just good to see that, that it's still happening and, and that the numbers are probably even bigger than what they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you're doing anything sport-wise yourself? 
Uh, I tick over, Matt. I, I swim, cycle or run pretty much every day of my life, very, very slowly. Um, I did the Sid Quirk um, a few weeks ago and somebody said who was watching me, the only way we could tell if you were walking or running was the expression on your face. So that pretty much sums up my speed at the moment. Uh, did, a, did an eight mile sea swim in September uh, in North Wales. There's a little group of us that, that like last of the summer wine, we look for a little challenge and then have a go at it. So next year we've entered the Hurley Burley, which is a 10k run followed by a 10k swim. Wow. That's wow. In, held in North Wales somewhere. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see, see Again, just to finish the thing. Oh, yeah, we're, yeah. we're not racing to compete, it's just a little challenge. Mm. Sea swim, I assume, is that? Sea swim, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, uh, you're nuts. Uh, just to actually loop right back, actually, back in the days at Castle Russian, I know you went to Canada for a, for a year. How did that all come about and what made you want to go out there? And did you take the old family with you? Yes, we did. It was, um, it, it was an organisation called the League of Exchange of Commonwealth Teachers. So you could exchange to anywhere in the Commonwealth. So you think of the teams who were in the Commonwealth Games, basically anywhere. So the three big countries that people swapped to were either New Zealand, Australia or Canada. So you just apply generally and um, the offer came up to spend a year just north of Toronto. Uh, my daughter was about seven weeks old when we left. Um, my son was three. Uh, my wife wasn't going to be working at that time anyway because of the children so it was an ideal time for us to go. But uh, what, again, what a fantastic experience. We swapped houses, we swapped cars. Mm. Um, I worked in his school for a year, he taught at Castle Russian for a year. I taught things like uh, American, fo American football in the snow, mm -hmm. snow football they called it. I say taught it. Um, <laughs> Tried to learn how I, to play. I joined in. Um, <laughs> one of the teachers, his brother, played for Toronto Argonauts, which were the um, Canadian football team. So he'd come along and help and coach the session where I, I just joined in basically and played rugby in the snow. <laughs> Happy days. Did things like curling. Again, there was a boy. I, I took the sixth form for curling and I said to them, I'm going to hold my hands up here. I've never yeah. seen this sport before. I know nothing about it. One of the boys said, I play for Ontario. Yeah. I'll take the session. So again, happy days, just having to go on a bit of curling. It was an after-school ski club. Uh, just a fantastic experience. And did you, did you find or see any difference in the way the kids approached sport between America and Isle of Man? Um, that's a good question. One thing I did notice that was um, huge for me was that they didn't wear school uniform. Uh, mm -hmm. Having always thought that schools yeah. where school uniform was paramount and I was a firm advocate of school uniform. Uh, by the time I came back, I changed my mind completely. I felt that it didn't really make any difference. Mm -hmm. Um, and had I not spent that year in Canada, I would never have been that person mm -hmm. saying that. I was such an advocate of school uniform, but the children, well, I say children, they were 14 to 18 was the school um, I worked at. Fantastic group of uh, young people. Um, and I thought, do they really need this restriction of uniform? Maybe it's something that teachers just want to impose. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, it changed my mind completely. What, what made you decide to go in the first place? Again, it's one of these things you see in advert and you think, I wouldn't mind to go with that. Uh, no, it's one's like that now. One, one guy from the Isle of Man, in fact, yeah, um, Jeff Cork, who also taught at Castle Russian, he had done it a few years beforehand. And 
uh, told me the stories of how much he'd enjoyed it. So, yeah, let's give it a go. So a few questions around uh, teaching kids and, uh, and young adults, ultimately. When you look at, uh, what do you think of generally, like, you're, you know, You've obviously got leadership skills. Is that something you've ever been conscious of working on, or is that just something that comes naturally? Because obviously you've got to, you've got to have them to be able to get the kids. Yes, I think all, all teachers have leadership qualities. Um, I certainly don't think I'm up there with the best, but yeah, you, you do have leadership qualities. If you don't have them when you start, after the six months of the job, yeah. you develop them. Yeah, right. you, you can't but. Um, not something you consciously no, actively saw you no, just yeah on the job learning almost yeah on the yeah, job yeah, learning yeah. and um, I would say I was a very very shy person when I was younger right. um, but the more you do of something the more confident you get yeah yeah, yeah. Sorry, no no that's alright uh, and then I suppose over the years as well uh, just dealing with uh, children have you seen a change in, and again, this isn't an, a positive or a negative comment, just generally kids' I suppose, attitudes or kids, you know, social media changes the environment that we live in, ultimately. Yeah. Have you seen that over your it's, years? It's of a question that people often ask teachers, you know, are children worse now than, than they were years ago? And I didn't, I didn't wish to add in the cancer worse, because that's not, you know, I don't yeah. but just change, just no, change. But it? I went to an inset day once, and very few of the inset days I attended over 40 years were of any use at all, but I, I vividly remember one where we walked in, and written on the whiteboard at the front was this statement, children these days have no discipline, they are unruly, they have no respect for their elders, and a whole list of things about children these days, and we had to guess who'd written it. So various people came up with all these things and it was actually written by somebody like Sophocles. So written oh, right. thousands of years yeah, ago right. and it just brought home how everybody seems to think that yeah. children are not as good as they were years ago. Well this was being said thousands of years yeah, ago yeah, yeah, yeah. and I don't think children are any different. They yeah. will respond to praise and they will respond to being told off as well hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you consider yourself a motivator? I would like to think so, that all teachers are motivators. Um, yeah, uh, I'd probably say that was one of my, if I had to pick a strength, yeah. it wasn't my technical knowledge of all these different sports, it was probably that I was a reasonable motivator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay, thanks for your time. I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. You've obviously, I think, the, th the thing I took before we chatted, and I know you keep dodging it, because mm. uh, every time I ask you, you, you just take no self-praise whatsoever, but the impact you've had mm. clearly on people, I think Matt is a clear example of that, sat here. Definitely. George definitely was when we met him. Uh, I think when, when Matt and I first talked about doing the podcast, one of the things we wanted to get to was people that, that work at grassroots level that people don't see... Uh, necessarily you see the athletes getting the medals you see the athletes get on the back page of the paper but most of that doesn't happen with the people at the, at the background setting setting the foundation whether it's teaching to taking classes after school training people so uh, it's been really interesting to chat to you about that type of thing appreciate yeah. your time thank you thank you very much as i say always happy to talk to you <laughs> no worries you got much to add uh, matthew yep i'll do the usual so 
Um, wherever you're listening, please like, subscribe and share. And if you'd be so kind to give us a five-star review, we'd really appreciate it. You can find us on Facebook on the M Word Podcast, Twitter we're Manx Sports Pod, and Instagram we are the M Word IOM. And just a reminder, please keep recommending guests for us to speak to because we're always happy to sit and chat with anyone who's out there. And I think uh, we also have a, uh, a new website launching. It might be out by the time this podcast is out as well, so keep an eye out on that, which we'll have the uh, episodes on and bits of other info and putting some blogs as well. So uh, thanks, thanks again for letting us into your ears and it's word out from Mom. And word out from Matt.